0: Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Leiba, and producer Elvin Freitas bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Element 451, it's the CRM your school needs to be more effective. Do you wanna give students a seamless experience with your school, from inquiry all the way to depositing? You need to get the time back to focus on students and that can be done with Element's automation tools, giving your team more time to work with more students. Move away from spreadsheets, Have real-time insights into where enrollment efforts stand, and empower your staff with an easy-to-use yet powerful platform. Visit element451.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. We'd like to have a little fun along the way. Speaking of somebody who likes to have a little fun, my co-host, the amazing... Liz, the phenom.
1: Oh Are
0: yeah, you?
2: Better go ahead and throw that phenom on the end. And I like to have a lot of fun, not just a you little do. bit of fun. So well, let's. Let me tell you clarify. how much fun. I,
0: well, let me tell you how much fun I'm not having um, right now. So oh. as you know, uh, I do have microphone t- uh, technical difficulties with my microphone, and yes. it's not the actual microphone itself because it's an amazing microphone. It's my use of said microphone. Which use Apparently, yeah. I look up literally yesterday. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a Google search on how close should my face be to the microphone, okay? <laughs> because I am being harassed, Liz. I am being mm-hmm. harassed by mm-hmm. our producer, Elvin Freitas. I am being Elvin. Harassed. Hey, the after Elvin, the amazing
2: Elvin, the amazing,
0: the phenom Elvin. I, uh, recently in an episode, I forgot to plug in my microphone and I did not hear from Elvin. He didn't call me or text me and say, hey, dude, your mic's great or it's not uh, great. Then recently I plugged in my microphone as you would normally do if you have a working microphone. And I get a text from Elvin saying, dude, you're too close. It sounds terrible. It's uh, this constant harassment of my microphone uh, uh, length uh, away I, from the microphone. I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm, I, now I'm nervous. I, <laughs> I have to apologize to the audience if this is coming, across, if I'm in your ear too much that you have to shut me off. I mean... Somebody help me, can get a witness here, Liz. I need Can I get a witness?
2: Well, you know what? This is all a learning process. Elvin and I are here to mentor you and help you to be better. So just take Mm. the the feedback and and just try to do better. That's all, it's no
0: big deal. Elvin, if you can hear the constructive criticism from Liz, perhaps the (laughs) constructive text messages, but we'll we'll talk about that later. My co-founder, Elvin Freitas. Well, I will tell you our guest today, Liz, um, in the short time we've gotten to know her, I can tell you already, she is one of the my favorite people. I already feel it in my yes. my stomach that she's going to be one of my favorite people that I ever Absolutely. will meet. She,
2: yeah, she's like a, I already say that she's my kindred spirit. So let's 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 get her. It's like on I've the already mic.
0: known her for like years after yes. just talking to her for five minutes.
2: Absolutely. So let's
0: bring her on right now. Without further ado, she is Jenny Ricard, and she is president and CEO of the Common Application. Jenny, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. It's great to be here with you.
0: Well, we're excited to have you because you've got a lot going on right now. Um, besides the fact that you're awesome, by the way, Liz and I already agree on that. Um, you, <laughs> you're leading um, really uh, uh, an initiative, uh, organization dedicated to really to college access, right? And we, it's funny, because we started that the experience. And when we did, we said, you know what, we need to give voice, we need to give voice to institutions, to students, to administrators, to champion, you know, higher ed, because people think a lot of about higher ed out there. Um, and, and frankly, there's a lot of noise out uh, outside of the higher ed universe about oh, there's not enough access, there's um, higher ed has made its way into the news before for limited access not really doing it, whether it's on purpose or not. And an organization like Common App is so important because we know, at least I believe, that higher education is still a golden ticket to economic prosperity. So talk about what you have going on at the Common App and, and why it's been so successful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, higher education is so critically important, uh, which is why I've pretty much dedicated my my career to uh, wanting to help all students, you know, be able to achieve post-secondary education. So it is uh, really a privilege to be at Common App, and particularly right now, um, because there's a real opportunity to to affect change, uh, I think just as a little bit of history for people, uh, because not everybody's aware that Common App started in 1975 and was uh, an idea that was generated by some college admission deans and some secondary school counselors who were seeing that students were starting to apply to more colleges. And colleges, these were started by private institutions and the private institutions were starting to see more competition from, from public institutions and students were also starting to think beyond their own region to go go to college. So these um, deans and counselors thought, why don't we create a common form and leverage the latest technology of the time, which at that time was the photocopier. And they uh, created this form to streamline the process so students didn't have to handwrite forms over and over again. But it also was an enrollment initiative to enable the colleges to get their names out in front of uh, students you know, in, in different geographical areas. So to do some more diverse re- recruitment. So that's sort of the origin and over, over well, that time, I'm sorry, yep.
0: I just want to interrupt and say and Liz I don't know if you know this because I just saw it down here that Jenny is a doctor she has a doctorate and I always like to do the formal introduction first Jenny so you're a doctor Jenny Ricard
1: oh (laughs) yes well that's
0: important go and now go ahead I'm sorry
1: okay uh sure no problem um so what's you know transpired over the years uh is this organization is still you know our our a membership a nonprofit membership organization committed to access equity and integrity in the college admissions process. And we went uh, online uh, on on the internet in 2000 and over time have enhanced the technology of of the application and and we're in the cloud now. We, We started with 15 members in 1975 and now we serve over 900 colleges and universities around the world uh, public and private, uh, and over 1 million students uh, will submit an application to the Common App um, every year. And a third of those students are first-generation college students, and that's where a lot of our focus is. And two, two years ago, um, a really important uh, change for Common App occurred when we uh, joined forces with Reach Higher, which is the College Access and Success Initiative started by former First Lady Michelle Obama during her time in the White House to create a college going culture. So Common App was started to basically remove barriers to access once a student decide decides to apply to college and Reach Higher is about uh, eliminating the the systemic and social barriers that might prevent a student from even thinking about applying to college. So us joining forces, we are now uh, together able to do much more than either of us could do individually. My great colleague, um, Eric Waldo, who's the executive director of Reach Higher, and I talk about um, how for me, from my vantage point, Reach Higher joining Common App uh, has been rocket fuel uh, for our mission of access and equity. And for Reach Higher, uh, they look at Common App as having been the rocket (laughs) that that they needed. So it's been really exciting for us uh, to to do all sorts of different things. And I would say the fundamental work that uh, we're aiming to pursue is when you look at the application from 1975, uh, and you look at the application from 2021, they are uh, remarkably similar. Yet the students today and the world today is incredibly different, so although uh, we've evolved with technology, um, the admissions process uh, for colleges and universities has remained you know much the same, and it's absolutely time uh, for a change and before the uh, pandemic started and uh, and also uh, before uh, we, we, we basically decided that we wanted to sort of evolve the application, and we were calling it we're going to have an evolution of the application. After the uh, really horrifying um, racial injustices uh, this this summer that we've witnessed, and it, certainly even prior, of course, um, we turned that evolution into a revolution. And so we made a, we've made a number of changes to the application that are. Fairly incremental in nature as we build up to working with our college and university members and with students and with counselors and uh, policymakers to really take a look at this process. From a student perspective and with an equity lens and how can we reinvent uh, access to college, because right now thinking about this process it has been one primarily of uh exclusion you know rather than inclusion the way here, it's here. often been approached
0: yeah and before i get out of the way liz uh, because i know that you're chopping a debate here I, w- I would like to ask you am i the rocket or am i the rocket fuel in our partnership <laughs> here that's the i want you to think about <laughs> that one before you start don't after-
2: imbe- don't ask dr McCartney, don't don't embarrass yourself. Dr. McCard is already going to, I'm sure she's already formed her opinion based on this initial conversation. So I don't want you to embarrass yourself any further by asking her to give her expert opinion on that. Okay. Okay. You're a couple. Uh, I just, I'm Thank trying you, to Liz. save your feelings. <laughs> Thank exactly. you, Liz. I appreciate it. <laughs> exactly, I'm trying to save your feelings. You, you were the one saying that you I felt hurt.
0: The, I think I'm the <laughs> rocket fuel for your rocket, Liz. <laughs>
2: Oh really oh that's a surprise okay i'm just saying that for the
0: benefit i'm trying to save face
2: oh okay there you go because i was gonna say i didn't want you to have hurt feelings because you you already said that you were getting criticism from elvin about your usage of your microphone
0: i can only handle so much
2: (laughs) i know i know so (laughs) let's let's just baby steps here baby steps i really love everything dr ricard is saying because it actually really resonates with me as a first generation student myself. And I think a part of some of my feeling overwhelmed in the college application process was just navigating all of the different applications. And one school needed a packet, another school it was just like a very simple application and all the, all the different applications, it just seemed like everything was so overwhelming. What do you think in terms of, I've seen you have been your organization has been leading panels on inclusivity, uh, really taking the lead on these issues, as you definitely have mentioned over the past decades. What are some of the pitfalls or some of the things that you're noticing for our first-generation students, students that are coming from marginalized backgrounds, students that don't normally feel as though they're going into an inclusive environment and maybe don't have the proper guidance? What are some of the things that you've narrowed down and and kind of pinpointed as far as the application process and how is your organization working with uh, the the schools that you serve to be able to um, eliminate some of those barriers to accessibility?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think one of the big challenges uh, in our country for students is the access to uh, counseling, college counseling. And uh, nationally, the average, student to counselor ratio is over 450 to one and the recommended school counselor ratio uh, for by by the american school counselor association is 250 to one and just therein you have students at schools i know in some states it's as high as 900 to one so a first gen uh, student, you know, may not have parents, does, does not have parents who went to college who had navigated this process before. And then they might most likely are potentially at a school where there's not access to, to school counseling to just have that curriculum in, in, as part of uh, their experience. So that's uh, a barrier in and of itself, you know, to try to uh, tackle, you know, going to college and where, you know, what, what tests do you need to take uh, how much will it cost? Because uh, you see the sticker prices of these different colleges and universities, even the you know the public institutions that are are expensive. And a student thinking I, I might not be able to afford this, um, a student not having had the counseling to recommend to them a college prep you know curriculum. Uh, so those those are fundamental barriers. And so you know we've been working uh, with you know there there's some terrific community based organizations. Uh, that we we champion and support, and we also champion and support the school counselors who are out there um, trying to help students. Um, and we encourage our our membership, you know, to be able to to, to target students who might not have that school counseling uh, to provide them with additional support. Um, and to give you a just a an example of one of the things that that we've done this year uh, it, with COVID. Uh, coming along in you know a year ago uh, it was it was in March in we were worried about the million students who had already ap- you know applied to college you know to enter in the fall and how they were going to be navigating their admission decisions and trying to figure out you know financial aid and which offer should they take and is that school even going to be teaching in person in the fall you know how are they going to make this decision and we were particularly um worried about, uh, you know, first generation students, uh, low income students, underrepresented students who may not have access to that, that school counseling. So we um, partnered with uh, a, a chatbot bot uh, run by Admit Hub that's a AI powered chatbot, and the College Advising Corps, which is a tremendous organization that is, uh, Putting counselors in schools that don't have that, that uh, counseling as part of their, uh, their school system. And this, this AI-powered chatbot also is sort of powered with empathy and is, is the way it approaches um, talking to students is you know, very accessible. And so we had it, you know, saying it was from Common App, uh, reached out to students, seeing if they had any questions, if they needed any help. And if the chatbot couldn't answer their questions, we would uh, put them in touch with a, a, a real life human being at College Advising Corps to help them navigate that process. We were able to target about uh, just under 200,000 students that we thought needed the most help. And we had more than a, a 65% engagement rate from those students, um, which I think really highlights um, the need for, for that kind of uh, focused, supportive advice. I mean, here it is coming from a, from a chat bot, but it was something that was focused and it was from a neutral party, you know, that is supportive of them, uh, trying to help them uh, navigate in the right direction. We're continuing that, that uh, process for the class of 2021 as well, and seeing right now over a 45% engagement. So we're hoping to get the lessons from the chatbot. About the kinds of questions that that the students are asking, uh, to be able to help our, our college and university members have on their websites in their in their materials, you know, here are the the, the the issues that that students are facing, and this is the kind of information you need to be able to provide upfront very clearly uh, to help students navigate through that process, um, because it is so. Um, challenging and if we can make the communications from colleges more common, not just the application common, uh, I think that that would help students immeasurably and so that's something that we'll be we'll be working on with our with our membership.
0: what about let me ask you this uh, just to shift just a tiny bit um, I think what mm, year. Uh, maybe a year ago and a little bit, the um, antitrust laws, uh, antitrust suit with NACAC uh, came out where, you know, it kind of eliminated the May 1st deadline lock-in for students as they applied for school. Has that, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because I'm wondering how events move schools to become members of the Common App into or out of, right? And so, did the antitrust, uh, the elimination of the May 1st deadline and that piece of uh, the governance move schools to go, hey, look, I need to get on with Common App. I need to make sure I'm in, ins- in front of as many students as possible. My ability to forecast enrollment is now heavily disrupted. And then COVID hits right on top of that, right? And now schools feel the heat and so on. And are they looking at Common App? you know I hate to ask it this way but sometimes sometimes schools are looking at recruitment um, without a specific lens I need more students it's not that I need more diverse students I just need more students and and do, do have you had schools flock to your membership because they want to get in more in front of more students because of, of the events that have happened that have disrupted higher ed lately
1: Yeah it's I would say that um, relative to that uh, that antitrust, uh, issue with, with the May 1st deadline. Uh, I don't think that there was any correlation with our members joining um, last year or the, the members coming up this, this year. That, that was not something that was mentioned. I think the thing, the, what we hear when, when members want to join it's they, they want to expand um, the diversity of their, their applicant pools uh, and they, they wanna make their process more accessible and the, some of the, the members have been able to show uh, that they have been able to expand uh, their first generation college applicants, uh, their underrepresented um, students. So I, I, that tends to be uh, the number one choice. I would say that one of the issues where sometimes uh, a school might not, might say they're, they're not joining um, which has become less, less of an issue is because of concerns about being able to predict yield um, once uh, joining the Common App. But we haven't heard that, that concern uh, as much. And certainly this year, uh, I think regardless of whatever, whatever application someone might be using, the, the ability to predict yield um, will be- Yeah, uh, it's obliterated, right? Much impossible.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Wait, so, so what about COVID though? Is that, you know, do, um, has that affected anything? Uh, with Common App in in terms of members or, or, you know, schools had to look at ways to entrench and decided, you know what, we need to not do this now, or you see them go forward going, yes, we need to access more students. Is that how, how how have you been affected by the pandemic at all? Um,
1: In terms of, are you talking about that in terms of membership increases or?
0: Membership students. I mean, however, it's affected you. I think it's fascinating because you're your your organization in, in providing that access. One of the things that we know and, and you probably do too is just number of students going to college is less you know, because yes. of risk tolerance and whatever. So you know, COVID has affected everyone to some degree, and just what you know how it relates to your particular organization.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll I'll share it from a, a variety of perspectives. Uh, again, when um, when COVID. Uh, came on the scene, and we certainly didn't know how long uh, it would be on the scene. Uh, we, I mentioned that text messaging initiative, that was our effort to really support uh, students um, through, through this process um, and, and at this incredibly uncertain time. We also uh, thought about students and them uh potentially needing to answer our, our, our college and university members a number of them they they can ask additional questions on the application form so there's a common portion of the application then there's some institutional specific uh questions that uh colleges can ask we were worried about um students needing to answer some sort of covid 19 question from uh many different colleges we were also worried about colleges having to read COVID-19 essays <laughs> in, the, in the essay component. Uh, so we worked with um, counselors and our colleges to uh, develop just a, a question of a space on the application that was optional for students to be able to explain how what we called um, a community disruption such as COVID or a, a wildfire uh, may help how that may have impacted their, their education or their, their uh, family life. Uh, So that could be a space for that. Um, We also wanted to help our membership, um, many of whom were now not going to be requiring standardized tests. Um, We went from, I think, just a little over 50% of our members requiring standardized tests to now, I think it's uh, fewer than 15% are requiring standardized tests as part of the application. So we uh, shifted our, our member conference, which went virtual, to provide... Uh, a variety of different perspectives on ways to factor in other, other characteristics of students into the process. You know, so-called non-cognitive characteristics, grit, character, you know, et cetera, uh, to help uh, predict success uh, in college. So those were some of the, the things that we did um, with that application. We also um, this this uh, year have been really closely monitoring. Uh, the data and the the trends in in applications and applicants. We were uh, given a a grant from the Gates Foundation to develop an equity-related data warehouse. And we were able to launch that in October, uh, which was just in time to start reporting uh, the trends that we were seeing in applicant behavior as well as applications to, to colleges. And what we saw early on that was really alarming Um, you know, back in early November, we were seeing double digit, uh, uh, declines in the percentage of first-generation college students, uh, submitting applications. So that was, that was a great concern. Um, so we, we, uh, uh, alerted, (laughs) we, we, we sounded an alarm, uh, about that. And that the number you know, declined to 7% and um, most recently it, we're down to a decline of 1% but in terms of individual students. But that compares to students who have a parent who went to college who are up 4%. So we're still sounding that alarm um, because we're worried about the impact that COVID and students having um, you know, been not necessarily present in a, in a school environment not having had access to the school counseling, also certainly family situations that have impacted students, you know, finances or family finances in terms of thinking about going to college. So we've been doing a lot of outreach uh, to our students. So there's been a lot uh, that COVID has inspired um, for Common App uh, to to do some things that we hadn't hadn't done before. I've been we had uh, today as or is. Um, is Staff Appreciation Day um, in the the world. (laughs) And I was reflecting on um, how amazing it has been of the Common App team, all of the different things that we have, have initiated and launched at a period that is just so hard for everyone, that every one of those initiatives has been trying to support our membership, the counseling community and students Uh, To ensure that that you know every student who wants to pursue uh, post secondary education has that has that opportunity. So I've been really excited about what we've been able to do, uh, but very alarmed, you know, about, um, you know, the impact that COVID has had on 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 students and, you know, what that means for their future. You know, the numbers that, uh, the enrollment numbers, the first year enrollment numbers that we all saw that are just incredibly um, unsettling, you know, 29% of, of, you know, low income students, a 29% decline um, in low income students enrolled is is just incredibly scary. Um, And we need to make sure that everybody's uh, laser focused on on those students who need the most, who are the most vulnerable right now.
0: Are you ready to reimagine your admissions and enrollment marketing? Wherever you are in the admissions CRM selection process, Element 451 is here to help you. Now why check them out? Well, Element 451 empowers admissions and enrollment teams to work more efficiently as they develop stronger, more personalized engagements with prospective students. Their cloud-based admissions, marketing, and enrollment CRM platform is powerful, yet easy to use. Complicated systems are exactly that, complicated. At its core are two of the most important ingredients for working smarter, automation and analytics. At Element 451, you get enrollment experts, marketers, engineers, data magicians, and thought leaders with decades of experience working in higher ed and ed tech to help you streamline your systems for more effective and greater yield. Visit them at element451.com. That's element451.com.
2: I think we had, uh, I want to say, Joe, maybe a few months ago, we had Dr. Reynald Verrett. He's the president of Xavier University of Louisiana. He talks about the idea that K-12 across the country is simply not equitable. Right, you Absolutely. could go to a school in one neighborhood, which I went to a school that was ninety percent black, and I remember we had we had about two thousand students, and we had I want to say it was like two guidance counselors. For the entire population of students so when you said those numbers I was like oh yeah for sure because that's literally what we had and I think a lot of people even up until recently when I say that they're like no way like K through 12 is not like every school doesn't have the same resources and I'm like no depending on the neighborhood where you went to school you could totally have an under resourced school which is what ours was but you didn't have enough books or the books were old or whatever the case may be you didn't have enough counselors you didn't have parents like mine that didn't go to college. So they weren't really able to guide me. And then I didn't have like SAT prep. I didn't have anything in terms of the the support mechanisms that probably somebody else might've had depending on where they lived and, and what neighborhood they lived here in South Florida. So I'm glad that you said that because I think that's something that sometimes us in higher ed we don't necessarily understand the students are coming from different perspectives, different neighborhoods, different um, environments that is not necessary in terms of access The access is there, but then how do we get that message across the student and how do we make the, the um, the process as frictionless as possible. Have schools been talking to you about outreach into the community, about making those connections with no income neighborhoods, about intentional um, behaviors in terms of recruiting students? Are they looking at support mechanisms on campus once first-generation students get there? What is your sense? We know that the numbers definitely, like you said, Um, are improving, but they're still like you that you mentioned, we're still needing to sound the alarm because a lot of these students just don't have the support mechanisms in place. What do you think we need to do like what can we do to help these students so that they will be successful.
1: I think uh, it's a great uh, such a great point, Liz, I I think it would be terrific if you know schools colleges right in their communities, you know, could provide you know, some direct outreach uh, to, to the students uh, you know, and, and, and support the, the secondary schools you know, by, by really helping to pave the way uh, to college, whether it's to their institution or not. You know, so sort of some pro bono counseling, which I know there are a number of, of colleges and universities who do do just that. But if we could make that more of a practice uh, you know, everywhere I think that could just make a, a, a significant difference uh, for students. And also, you know how can we leverage uh, peer networks? You know I've, I've heard really great stories of um, some charter schools or other schools that will uh, get their their college bound students who are you know together with students in college. Um, who went to their went to their school and how much a difference that peer network, you know, that near peer mentoring can make for students. So, any ways that um, colleges and universities can think about helping to have their own students reach back into their communities uh, to support um, support individuals, I think could be could be critically important. But again, it's also uh, I know that our membership, uh, college and university members, care deeply about wanting to. Provide more access uh, to students, and try to engage with with students in their communities. But sometimes find it hard to navigate the the, the second the the school because there might be one counselor for nine hundred students. You know, so how do you get, how do you get engaged in there? And so oftentimes they they have great partnerships with particular community based organizations uh, that they work with because there's so many terrific uh, CBOs that um, that's often a, a, a good avenue for that, but sometimes it, you know, it's, it's hard for a student to get connected to a CBO, um, so I, I hear you, Liz. I, um, one of the, when I was graduating from college, people don't um, often realize this um, or even believe it. <laughs> I had such a transformative experience that I wanted everybody to be able to go to college, and I, so I decided that I wanted to become a dean of admissions to be able to, to do that, and when I, Got uh, started working in undergraduate admissions. My very first recruiting trip, my very first day, I went to a you know, public school uh, just outside of uh, Tucson. I went to an uh, independent school in Tucson and then to a magnet school. At the first school, I saw a counselor and a student who wanted to apply early decision. At the second school, the small um, private school, I saw a third of the 24 students in the senior class. (laughs) So I saw eight students. And then I went to the magnet school um, in Tucson where I walked through the metal detector. Uh, There was a counselor, but I couldn't talk to her because there was an emergency she had to attend to. And I didn't see any students. And then I went to the college fair that night where I saw students from both of the first two schools, but not from the magnet school. And that was when I just, you know, when you see the high schools of America, you see the inequity and it does start in the zip codes, right? Um, And I think, um, I wish I had, you know, uh, a great solution Um, but I think it's going to take, um, you know, uh, some local work, right? Sort of uh, think globally and act locally um, here Um, in addition to, uh, you know, policy, you know sort of big policy changes and so I, we're doing everything we can uh, to create change, but it really comes down to the educational opportunities that, that students get you know, right you know, when they're first going to school.
2: I'm new. so glad you gave that illustration, Dr. Ricard. My heart is racing because I went to a magnet school
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that school was 90% black. And the only white children that attended that school, it was like probably mostly black, some Latino students and majority of us Basically, the only white students that attended the school were a part of the magnet program and we had a performing arts magnet. So they bused students in from the west side of town, and they were in a totally separate building. So we wouldn't see them at all. They were basically segregated from the rest of the students. And the school was in like the heart of a lot of that. I remember my husband's Italian. So um, just to give you a little bit of context, he's, he's, he's from New York. So he's, he's very streetwise. but uh-huh. I remember one time driving past my high school and he was like, this is where he went to high school. He was like, Oh, this is like, <laughs> get me out of this neighborhood kind of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> because it was a a rough area. I always tell people like, think about dangerous minds. Like if you wanna think about like the high school that I went to. So I think sometimes people have this myth and, and what you said that that idea of going to three different schools and seeing just the vast difference is so illustrative. Um, because I think people don't often realize just how inequitable K through 12 education is across the country. And, and that's a part of us in higher education. If we understand we have to k- take that extra step to make outreach in some of these neighborhoods and not just say, well, hey, access is here. If they want it, they can come get it. It doesn't really work that way because um, literally those students from the time they step foot into kindergarten are going to be disparately treated and have a disparate education compared to the rest of the the children maybe in their county or in their state, you know?
1: Absolutely, it really makes me angry.
2: Before I turn it over to Joe, I wanna also talk about um, gender gender and gender identity. I noticed that you all are also addressing that in terms of the app. Can you talk to us a little bit about that as well? Cause that's, that's also something that is a concern that we're making sure that students have, you know equality and equity in terms of how they identify and, and answering questions and things of that nature on the application. It, I, I was like, wow, that seems like it would be intuitive but I guess it's something that hadn't necessarily been thought of previously.
1: Yeah, um, thanks for that, that question. Um, we just just announced that as part of our um, evolution of the application process uh, that we started looking at a variety of questions that we were concerned um, were barriers for student, students or um, inhibited a student from actually seeing themselves in the application. And certainly, uh, sex and gender identity is, is one of those. We, we Last, in 2016, we launched the application with um, a, a, a change in the, in the sex gender question, insofar as we added a text box um, to enable students to describe or share their gender identity if they wanted to. So that was our sort of first effort uh, five years ago um and in getting the data from that we saw that there were answers you know sort of all over the map and um that the text box still wasn't necessarily uh illustrative of um or or showing the student that we were actually seeing them in the application so as part of our um evolution process we really wanted to take another look at that and decided to make uh you know some some changes because when you when you you see some of the really um, devastating data from we looked at data from the Trevor Project about um, students who might have a are trans or you know non-binary gender fluid um, thinking about suicide more more than their more than their um, more than their peers so. We uh, added uh, some aspects to the application for that will launch on August 1st for next year. To actually have a, a student be able to share their pronouns, um, as well as describe their gender identity from a drop-down list, or if it's not in the drop-down list, be able to add add their own description of, of how they how they um, identify. And we're also adding in more uh, support and help um, text and trying to use language, uh, that is more, m- more inclusive, uh, for the students and just being very aware of that. Um, so we're really, um, excited to, to launch that. So that, that's the, that's, uh, what we're doing in terms of the, the sex and gender identity.
2: And I'm so glad you mentioned that because the idea that a student, from the LGBTQ plus community may look at an application and see certain pronouns listed and just say, "Uh, like that friction alone of, I don't see myself there. Maybe that's not gonna be a welcoming environment for me to be in, I might not feel safe there. And then that alone may be a barrier that stops that individual from being able to pursue. So I think it's so many things that just thinking outside the box and being empathetic about other communities that we may not necessarily identify with or be a part of and just being able to break down barriers so that they do feel that they belong in spaces where they might otherwise not feel included. So I appreciate you um, showing how you guys are tackling that issue.
1: Yeah, um, um, there were a couple other areas um, that we were changing for next year too. Um, we started it off with uh, eliminating the school discipline question from the common portion of the application for next year. We're uh, starting that um, because uh, black students are four times as likely than white students to be disciplined in a, in a school setting. And the practices are just uh, talk about inequity, inequity, because <laughs> um, uh, of a, a, a a black student is more than twice as likely than a white student to be disciplined for the same infraction, um, and it's it's uh, really disturbing. And we were able to look at our own data to see that a, a black student who had started the application and indicated that they had had a, a disciplinary uh, infraction uh, were more likely not to submit an application um, than than another another student. And we just, just didn't want that to be a barrier for students. So we're moving it off the common portion of the application and really have been working to educate our membership uh, so that they're aware that if they decide to add that as an institutional question on their application, that they may be losing some really talented students uh, from their applicant pools. And uh, so that was that was something that we've been been very um, excited about being able to leverage that data that I mentioned to you from the from the data warehouse to be able to show what the impact of some of these questions is on, on student behavior in the application process. We're also making changes to the citizenship question uh, because concerns that uh, undocumented students uh, were getting stuck in the process as well, not submitting application, not some completing their applications because we had questions about, you know, their parents and uh, where they worked, uh, things like that, that uh, were, you know, intrusive and and scary for students to to, to answer. So um, I've been excited and very proud of our team for uh, engaging very very thoughtfully with the membership and with the counseling community and with the students themselves um, to come up with solutions that can help institutions get the information they need, but also ensure that we're not deterring students from completing their applications.
0: So Jenny, what's next for Common App? I mean, you've got 900 or so member institutions. Is it uh, 1,500, 10,000? I mean, talk to me about how you imagine the future of uh, championing your commitment to access for first-gen students.
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, when you think about uh, access and equity, you know, for all students, you know, we are really working uh, to create a direct, um, unambiguous path um, to a great future, right, for all students. And our membership is composed uh, primarily of four-year institutions. I think we have two institutions that are are two-year. And so we are... uh, Looking to see how we might best support community colleges. If you're thinking about access and equity, and the fact that you know nearly 40% of undergraduates attend community college, then uh, we need to um, we need to serve community college students and community colleges. And our our product, you know, the application itself has not been um, one that. Community colleges, you know, would be useful for them. It's, it's often more than what they would need, particularly if they uh, so so many are you know open admission uh, clearly. So we're working um, uh, with some community colleges and uh, other other supports to determine like what would be some of the best mechanisms to to help support enrollment in, in community college and, and certainly the, the students. And as a result then be able to work with the community colleges to help facilitate the transfer process. More than 80% of students who uh, enter community college have an ambition to attend a four-year institution to transfer, uh, but only a third end up doing so. And I think less than uh, 15% actually end up completing a four-year degree in in six years. So it's... uh, of a particular focus that we want to to give to community colleges. We also just announced um, in another area in terms of the affordability, we announced a pilot with um, Scholarship America, which is a private scholarship aggregator uh, to try to reduce the friction in the private scholarship market. You know, over the past 20 years, um, there has been a shift uh, from students receiving uh, uh, private scholarships there used to be more students who were um, underrepresented minority students or low income students receiving private scholarships. And that has shifted to now more uh, white and uh, middle to upper upper class students receiving private scholarships. And that is not, <laughs> not equitable. Um, so we are uh, piloting with them to identify students who are completing a common app who might be eligible for a particular scholarship and be able to let that student know um, directly that you know all they need to do is complete this one additional step and they will be an applicant for this scholarship and we are um, hoping that this will help diversify because our our applicant pool is more diverse than the private scholarship applicant pool uh, that this will help diversify uh, the recipients of of those those funds. Um, so those are those are some of the initiatives uh, that we're that we're working on and excited about. And certainly expanding into the community college market is something that I'm I'm very eager for us to do.
0: Yeah, and I think oh god, there's so many amazing community college leaders that we've. I will tell you, Liz and I have been privileged, and I mean it, to to have been uh, in in speaking with some like Liz, who Daria Willis, and uh, 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 God, I can't even think about them all. Um, John Rainoni, and and there are just so many amazing community college presidents that are so committed and passionately committed to creating more access, and it sounds like a match made in heaven, uh, Jenny, for you to do that and and go in that direction, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I will, I will ask you our final two questions to, to be sensitive to your time, which we ask every guest. And um, the first is, is, and you kind of talked about it a little bit, but what didn't we talk about today when it comes to the common application, your organization, what you have going on, anything that you want to say at all, your chance to plug uh, whatever you'd like. And number two, what does the future of higher education look like to you?
1: Yeah, so I would say um, the thing I'm really excited about um, for Common App, and I did mention it a little bit, so I won't belabor it here, is um, moving from evolution to revolution uh, when it comes to the application process and connecting students to college. And how do we make it student-centered uh, and student-focused? It is, uh, you know, a strange thing when you think about the fact that people are applying to something to pay money for it. <laughs> and, uh, Rather than uh, students sort of being in the driver's seat, you know, so I, I'm eager to develop a process collaboratively where students can really feel like they're in the driver's seat um, and more in control of, of their future. Um, so that's, I'd say, what, what's one of the big things that's next for us. And um, future of higher ed. <laughs> um, I, I am a perennial optimist and positive person. <laughs> so my my future predictions are always fairly uh, fairly positive, and I so think you're more this, you're more
0: like me than Liz. <laughs> just for that yeah.
1: I think that um, COVID, you know, finding the the silver lining of COVID has shown that higher education institutions can actually change uh, pretty quickly when they need to, and this admissions process we're we're going to change it uh, because we need to, and COVID has shined a light on the inequities of access. And so I see the future um, being colleges and universities becoming more uh, empathetic uh, as well as entrepreneurial and trying to meet students where they are and whether that means they're at home learning or whether that means they're on their campus, making sure that they're creating um, campus initiatives and cultures. Uh, that will be more inclusive and supportive of those students. So I, I, am, I am bullish on higher education uh, for the very reasons that we talked about earlier that um, it's, it's the best investment a person can make in their future. And certainly the pandemic has shown that a college education can be the difference between um, being employed and unemployed. And I think that's, um, that is the lesson that I hope people will take from from uh, this this devastating pandemic.
0: What do you say? Let's say it louder for the people
2: in the back.
1: Yeah, uh, say it louder for the people in the back. There you go.
0: <laughs> I, I will tell you, uh, Jenny. I really appreciate that perspective because I agree. At you know, college education. Hopefully, as much a, as much as people question the value of, of of higher education, I will tell you. One of my mentors said to me, and he always said, just in general, it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And I think we're seeing that happen uh, as a result of COVID where you really need it and, and you don't have it and it can give you a leg up uh, to stay working in, in even the worst of times. Uh, so I really appreciate that perspective. Um, this uh, has been an amazing episode of the Edup experience with your, yours truly the rocket and Liz the rocket, I'm sorry, uh, with Liz the rocket and me the rocket fuel. Um, Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor <laughs> for you to come on, thank you so much. Um, and this is Jenny Ricard, and she is present. Dr. Jenny Ricard, president <laughs> and CEO of the Common Application. Thank you so much, Jenny.
1: Well, thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure. I, I've been honored to be on your show. So thank you.
0: Hey, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the EDIP Experience. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.